0: Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, February 12th, 2021, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. I actually stumbled on a little fact this morning that Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin, obviously two of the great figures of the 19th century, were both born on February 12th, 1809. There's no end to the information you can get when you listen to the Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. At any rate, I'm Tony O'Brien, professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is Glenn Hubbard, who's a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We're very happy to have joining us today a recent economics graduate, Sydney Levine, who will discuss her experiences in taking economics courses and the usefulness of the courses to her job. Sydney graduated in 2018 from the State University of New York, Geneseo, with a BA in economics and mathematics. Lee Stone was one of her instructors. She went on to earn an MA in international economics and finance from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Sydney currently works at Guidehouse, which is a management consulting firm based in the Washington, DC area. Welcome, Sydney, and thanks very much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, I'm so excited to be here.
0: Great, well, let me start by asking which economics courses you took as an undergraduate, and maybe also as a master's student if you wanted to talk about that, and what your motivation was for taking them. In particular, thinking about your principles of economics courses. What'd you like best? Was there any material you struggled with? If you did struggle with anything, How did you eventually master that material?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I should start by saying that I actually started at SUNY Geneseo as an English education major. And after having, you know, a conversation with myself about how I shouldn't be responsible for children's development, I switched (laughs) to business administration. And in my principles of economics class, actually, you know, I loved the material and I was doing pretty well. And so my professor said to me. You can't do anything with a business administration degree that you can't do with economics. And actually, you can do a lot more with economics. And so I ended up switching my major and added mathematics later down the road because I love the subject so much. And I thought I was going to get a PhD in it. And somebody told me, you know, you better tighten up those math skills if that's really on your to-do list. So I kind of had a roundabout journey about, you know, getting into economics. And the principles of economics, course, was, again, just like where I fell in love with econ. And learned about how econ really impacts every area of our lives. I took as many electives as I could. I was a macro girl through and through. And so when I finally got to take the money and banking course, that's when econ finally clicked for me. I think it took all of the theories and principles that we had been learning and applied it to the real world. And it allowed me to think kind of critically about things that were going on, you know, all over the world and in our country, and it kind of added that extra layer of context that I think I needed to really feel like an economist. I think, you know, I mean, who hasn't struggled in an econ class, right? Like, on the one hand, economics is kind of made up. (laughs) Like, none of it's really real. You can't feel it. You can't, like, see it, um, and it doesn't always hold up, and so that's something that I struggled with a little bit at the beginning, and then the other thing is you can't just take a solution and throw it at any problem in econ. You have to really think critically through it. And so it was not about, can you memorize these formulas? It was about, can you recreate this graph and understand what it means when you move variables around how does that change the circumstances? So those are two major lessons from my Money in Banking and Principles of Economics course that um, changed the way I think about literally the world and then you know about economics in general.
2: I fell in love with economics the way you did in principles. I came from engineering into economics and I saw it really as a toolkit to solve practical problems. And then the question is how to get from the the models to the problems. So I think your journey is familiar to all of us who've fallen in love with with economics. I wanted to to take you from uh, what Tony asked you about in in the, the school experience to your job. So could you tell us a little bit about the job you have at GuideHouse and how'd you locate the opening and did you do an internship or some kind of relationship with the firm before you join?
1: Yeah. So when I lived in DC, because I was getting my master's, I was able to do internships with various think tanks. Um, I did a lot of really cool research professors and I was able to expand my network a lot. which was so important, but actually I found the GuideHouse job posting on LinkedIn and applied and was very surprised to hear back. I didn't know anyone at the firm. Um, it was kind of a happy accident. And I've actually, you know, the network I developed there, which was super helpful for getting internships and gaining skills. Now I use it to help, you know, alumni of my program and undergrad get their foot in the door at Guidehouse or other areas where they want. So network is important, but I actually just got lucky with Guidehouse LinkedIn. I think for me, econ is a really fun intersection of like STEM and the social sciences, right? So it kind of allows you to be the most creative person at the quantitative table and then the most quantitative person at the creative table. And management consulting is the same kind of intersection. You know, you have to be strategic and forward thinking and solve complex problems. You kind of get to decide how you do that. And so with GuideHouse, you know, I've had a lot of experiences over the past two years. I've been with them doing a number of projects, but lately um, I've been focusing on something called change management. And that's kind of how companies or organizations can manage the people side of change. And I think this piques my interest because I loved behavioral economics in undergrad and grad school. So kind of that intersection of psychology and economics and how human behavior influences things. So when an organization is trying to implement a change, you know, you have to think what incentives are in place for these people, you know, to engage in the action you want them to, or not engage in the action you don't want them to? What's their opportunity cost here? Like, econ lets you look at every problem through a lens that I think is unique to economists, and a lot of people don't see it that way. So I really found my niche in change management, um, and it's been really cool to be able to apply that analytical background.
2: Well, that's interesting. So within change management or some of the other areas you work on, how were you able to apply economics quite directly, you mentioned opportunity costs and some behavioral economics, but were there particular classes that stood out? Like, oh, I'm so glad I took that. Or you know, other classes that may not have helped you as much. What really have you used day-to-day at GuideHouse?
1: Well, it's funny because you know, I love econ so much and I have a master's in econ and I do not use economics really day to day. But I think it set me up to again like think really critically. I know how to solve problems and I know how to approach things with like an analytical eye. And while I'm not, you know, looking at supply and demand all day or thinking about how you know banks' behavior is gonna impact. I work for a federal transportation client, you know, they don't care. It it really is just about my frame of mind and how I approach these these problems. And I think, you know, I think the only reason my resume stood out on LinkedIn is because I had this quantitative background and they're missing that, you know, in a lot of these more softer skills client facing roles. And so I think it set me up for a success in a very indirect way.
2: Are you the only economist in the office?
1: I'm the only economist on my project team. I think Guidehouse employs um, people in economic development for other engagements, but I'm the only economist um, at the Department of Transportation.
2: Okay. I'm really glad you you talked about the toolkit because I've always found that in anything I've done, I've used economics as much as a way of thinking as literally thinking about particular models or particular ideas. I do think that's something that we have as a, as a field. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. Definitely. So what advice do you have for others? So, One of the reasons Tony and I like to do this discussion with recent grads is to get advice for students who are thinking about taking economics in college and wondering what they'll do after graduation. So you got there in a particular path you described. Any advice on particular do's and don'ts and how to use it in your job search?
1: So my advice to students would be that studying economic economics positions you to work in literally anything. You know, you can work for the government, you can work in monetary policy, you can work in finance or project or change management. My advice to be would be to walk to any interview down the line knowing that you have a really solid background and walk into any economics class knowing that you're not just learning economic theories, you're learning real life problem solving and critical thinking skills. Do
2: you have any questions for Tony and me?
1: Yeah, what's your favorite like econ fact that you just think about sometimes that's cool.
2: Oh I think it's that Charles Darwin and Abraham Lincoln have the same birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Tony, what would you say? What's your favorite economic
0: fact? Oh, that is a good one. I mean I, I can talk a little generally. I was just listening to you, um, Sydney, I thought that it is true that thinking like an economist is a phrase we use a lot. And um, the students are sometimes wondering, what the heck does that mean? But it is surprising uh, the different approach that economists take sometimes, even on what seem, once you've taken courses in economics, to be straightforward. I mean, the idea of opportunity cost, a lot of times people uh, overlook that, that there are budget constraints, meaning, you know, if you do one thing, are you really going to be able to do something else? Or when we choose one, we're really giving up the other and incentives as as you mentioned one of the things that puzzles me sometimes in academics is that university presidents or deans or provosts or whatever will have certain objectives that they'll talk to the faculty about but then they don't really give the faculty the incentives to to do that i I was thinking this the other day that uh, we often get pep talks about how we should be giving more writing assignments because one of the things we get feedback on sometimes from the people who hire Lehigh students is, well, you know, their their communication skills were somewhat better. If they wrote better, you know, it would would be great. And so um, we'll we'll get pep talks that, you know, we really need to increase the writing. But then when faculty are evaluated, the, the fact that you had term papers in your courses is typically not something that uh, anyone, when push comes to shove, much cares about for promotion and raises and things like that. So that's an obvious example that would strike an economist that, gee, if you really want people to do X, you should change their incentives so that X turns out to be something that they do rather do than to do Y. So it seems like your experience um, in management consulting kind of confirms that.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: For me, I would say I go all the way back to Adam Smith, one of
2: the very first economists. Smith didn't have math in the wealth of nations, but he had really almost everything that you find in contemporary modern economics. So basically he asked the question, what's the wealth of a nation? I don't know. It sounds simple to us today. We would probably agree with Smith. It's the ability of people to consume, meaning how big is your economy how productive are you? in modern words, things like GDP, productivity. But at the time Smith wrote, people were counting bars of gold and silver and calling that wealth. And Smith said, that's nonsense. That's not what wealth is. And what's interesting about it is how insightful it is, but how many times it has to be said again. It was said in 1776 by Smith, but we just had an economic debate over trade that kind of had the same problems that Smith was reacting to two and a half centuries ago. to me, what I like about economics is that as formal as we make it, some of the really powerful ideas are the simplest of all.
0: I was thinking about Smith the other day because um, you know, we've had a lot of snow in this part of Pennsylvania, and one of the, the insights that, that Smith had was the notion that we end up getting results we don't necessarily intend, that you might have a lot of firms that are maximizing profit and they're thinking, you know, what can I do to... To, to make the firm better off financially. And consumers are thinking, you know, what can I buy to make myself as well off as possible? But as Smith pointed out, the interaction of the consumers and the firms can lead to results that nobody quite intended, because they're led by, of course, in the famous metaphor of Smith, you know, the invisible hand to, to come up with, uh, with certain results that, that nobody really expected might happen. And Later, economists sometimes have used the phrase spontaneous order. That we, you know, we get these economists think of them as equilibrium coming in a way that we didn't expect. And I was thinking about as I was shoveling snow, that each person in the house on our block is out there, you know, shoveling their own sidewalk and shoveling their own driveway for their own purposes. I want to get my car out and you know, I want to be able to walk the dog without slipping. But without any of us uh, intending it, as you step back, the whole sidewalk, right, from one end of the block to the other has been shoveled. It was, you know, nobody came and told us, hey, you know, you you do this part, you do that part. We got no orders from above, but each of us pursuing what was, we thought, our own narrow interest ended up benefiting everybody because now you can walk from one end of the block to the other without slipping and, and sliding. So, There's an amazing, as Glenn said, an amazing amount of stuff in Adam Smith that if you read The Wealth of Nations and can get past the kind of what seemed to us today to be antique language, still speaks to many of the situations that we're in.
1: Totally. I love that. And yeah, those positive externalities, I think about it all the time because I think in especially management consulting, we try to identify the negative externalities first, like risk management, but positive externalities happen way more than probably economists would usually predict like people are good a lot of the time and good things happen. And so it's important to recognize that too. So externalities is something that I definitely think about constantly in my line of work and personal life. Great. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was, uh, I was looking the other day, there's a a classic study that William Nordhaus, the economist at Yale did. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion of, well, you know, during the, the pandemic, Jeff Bezos's fortune went up by $9 billion or something like that. And, you know, this person made a lot of money, that person made a lot of money. And Nordhaus did this famous calculation, the, the details of which we're not going to go into, but he tried to, to measure how much does an entrepreneur typically gain of the economic surplus that he or she creates? You know, in principles, we talk about how economic surplus is created because, you know, as consumers, you may buy a Big Mac for $3 or something, and you actually would have paid $10 right, because you really like Big Macs, but you got it for three, so you got $7 worth of surplus. And Nordhaus uh, did these calculations, and he, he ended up saying entrepreneurs get about 2% of the economic surplus that they create, and the rest of it, in effect, in effect you can think of it as, as an externality. It's basically we're all. We're all benefiting. You know, we're, we benefit from Amazon having all this stuff that we can quickly buy during a pandemic without having to run the risk of going to a store and it gets delivered You know, these days, oftentimes the next day. And sure, Bezos gets some of that and the shareholders of Amazon get some of that, but the rest of us get a lot that isn't captured by the, by the companies because of the nature of the market and uh, once again, a kind of a, a, a simple concept of economic surplus that when you begin to think about it, gives you a different perspective on things, including to what extent is, is Jeff Bezos? He must be exploiting us because he's making billions of dollars. Well, actually, probably not. We're actually you know, getting a, a lot of benefit from, um, from what he's done.
2: Yeah, I'm not puzzled by Jeff Bezos, but I am wondering about who would pay 10 bucks for a big bag. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I didn't have my lunch yet, so maybe that was it. (laughs) I think I'd go 15 right now if somebody would just hand me one in my office. (laughs) Sydney, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm sure that students listening will find what you've said very interesting and helpful. Hope you have a good weekend. Wish you the best of luck with your career. A reminder to our listeners that this podcast is available on iTunes, where you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please keep checking our blog at hubbardobrianeconomics.com for new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. In fact, the email alerts usually contain the whole post. If you have any issue or concern you'd like us to discuss on a podcast, please send us an email at hubbardobrianeconomics at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. Have a good Valentine's Day filled with romance and chocolate. We look forward to connecting with you again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We'll see you next time.